Father, we come grateful. And we are grateful. Lord, we must also be honest. We are in some parts of our life afraid this morning. And we come to pray to you for those things. We come to pray to you, Lord, for those we are afraid of. People. We fear may harm us emotionally, physically, some other way. Lord, we pray you would change their heart. And you would give us courage to do what's right, even when faced with their sin. Father, we also pray for those we are afraid with. We are afraid and they are afraid of what is to come. We pray we both have courage and a sense of your presence and in your mercy that you would save us. And we also pray, Lord, this morning for those we are afraid for. They don't see the danger coming, but we do. They don't see the problem that they're in, but it's there. We are afraid for them, God. We pray you would open their eyes to see. In your mercy, reach out to them and show them your way. We come in in gratitude. We pass through fear. Lord, hoping to come to assurance and comfort, even if just for an hour, that this is your world. You hold all these things and all these people and all of us. Help us to know this today, that you are in control. You are our God and we are your people. Amen. Good morning to you. Last week we had a presentation using these folding chairs called the Gospel in Chairs. It's a presentation to show the good news of Jesus Christ, our relationship to God, his relationship to us, Christ's work on the cross. I did not create this illustration. As near as we can tell, this illustration was created by Father Anthony Carbo, who is an Orthodox priest. Someone I don't know named Steve Robinson saw it. He shared it with Pastor Steve Zond. Uh, uh, sorry, how about Brian Zond? Brian Zond of St. Joseph, who is a person that I saw do this. I'll quote him uh, several times during the message. My English teacher tells me uh, that if I... Uh, Quote, my sources, it's not plagiarism. So we're going to hope that's the case, because otherwise it's, it's plagiarism. All right, so we did the presentation. This presentation is so important that we uh, said, that you, let's make a time this week for questions about it, challenges to it, concerns about this presentation. Because the forgiveness of sins is a very found, one of the foundational principles of the Christian faith. If we don't have a strong foundation, if we've got cracks in the foundation, 
then anything we try to build on at this church community, our witness to the community and the world, it will collapse under the weight when weight is pressed on it. So we need to have a solid foundation in the forgiveness of sins and our understanding in order to have a community built around it and good news to share. So it's super, super important. Now, I want to tell you that I got 50 responses, about 50 responses, um, questions, concerns, and challenges. And I want to tell you that uh, not a single one, not a single troll in the whole batch. I don't know if you know how rare this is in our culture to allow anonymous responses and get so many and have nobody say anything nasty no one said anything condemning. No one said anything snarky or smart alecky. But um, just read your YouTube comments sometime about anything, and you'll know what I'm talking about. And I am very, very grateful. It shows the maturity and the thoughtfulness of the people who gather here week in and week out. And I am I was really blessed by that. Thank you. Several times last week we said that God is like Jesus and that God has always been like Jesus. There was never a time God wasn't like Jesus. We didn't always know that, but thanks to Jesus coming, now we do. Which prompted several of you to ask, all right, then could you do the gospel in chairs using just Old Testament passages? Absolutely. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve to live with him in the garden and to reflect his glory. He gave him the run of the place. He said, you can eat any food in this garden that you want. Just don't eat the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil because that leads to death. But the serpent came slithering in and said, oh, it does not. It does not lead to death. So humanity ran right over and ate of the fruit, which hereafter shall be called the fruit of I know better. And when they ate the fruit of I know better, they immediately started walking down a path toward death. And God expelled them from the garden. Oh, okay, so surely God is turning his back on them. They're expelled from the garden, but no. It appears somehow God was still in relationship with them, for he clothed them, and he continued to tell them things like, you're going to have many offspring, and one day one of those offspring will crush that serpent's head. God continues to come to humanity. He wants to reach out. So he reaches out to a man named Abram and he says, Abram, through you, I'm going to create a whole nation to show my nature as the God who comes. I'm going to give you offspring as numerous as the stars and they will be a light to every nation on earth. And Abraham said, great. And then he got tired of waiting for it. So he thought he'd maybe help God's plan along a little bit. He slept with his servant girl and had a son named Ishmael and said, there, good enough. God said, I didn't want that to happen. You're going to have to send Ishmael away. Oh, surely God is turning his back, sending a poor boy and a servant girl away. But no, God comes and he says, you know what? I'm going to make a whole nation out of Ishmael too, even though that's not what I wanted to happen. And the descendants of Ishmael still live with us on the earth today. Then God says, now let's get back to the plan. You're going to have a son named Isaac. And through him, all nations will be blessed. And Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had a whole slew of sons. I always lose count because Jacob keeps adopting his grandkids as his kids. I think there was like nine or ten. All right. So anyways, he has a whole slew of these sons. And one day they get jealous of their younger brother, Joseph, and they throw him down a well, wait for some slavers to pass by, and sell their own brother into slavery. 
Brilliant. And then a famine comes on Israel. Well, surely God's turning his back on them, judging them with a famine. But no, they wander over to Egypt to get some food. And who shows up? Joseph, the brother they sold into slavery. He got himself out of slavery over there with God's help. And now he's in charge of, of all things food storage. He's stored up enough food, not just for Egypt, but for any nation that lives around them. He says, come one, come all, I'll feed you. Pay close attention to this story. The brother they tried to kill is now the one who's saving them. This might sound familiar to you from a little later in the story. So God comes. Well, they settle down. Well, let's just live in Egypt. This place is great. Except a couple of centuries later, the Egyptians kind of forget about all this and say, we got to enslave these people. We don't need a bunch of foreigners living here. And the people cry out, surely God has turned his back on us. Now we live in slavery. But no, God comes at the burning bush and he tells Moses, you're going to take these people and set them free. And he does. And they're out in the desert and it's time to celebrate what God has done. And what do the people do? They make a golden cow and say, it wasn't him who saved us. It was this little golden cow. And God says, these people are not going to enter the promised land. Surely God's turning his back on them. They're not going to the promised land. But no, a generation later, God comes. He parts the Jordan River and they enter the promised land. Once they're in the promised land, they say, God, we want a king. God says, why do you want a king? You have me. They say, in classic teenager fashion, all the other nations have a king. God says, you're not going to really like kings. Kings are bad. Power corrupts and absolute power corrupts. Absolutely. A pagan will say that someday and you won't believe it even then. But I'm telling you now. And so they insist on a king. So God says, okay, here it comes. King Saul. King Saul. Tall, good looking, crazy. Surely God's turning his back on them, giving them this maniacal psychopath with nice hair as a king. But no, God comes. He gives him another king. He anoints him. His name is King David. He's a man after God's own heart as much as a man can do that. But didn't God just say the power of a king corrupts them? It corrupts even little David. Oh my gosh. He commits adultery and then to cover it up, kills the woman's husband. Now he's sitting there. He has a child from adultery. The baby gets sick. He's dying. Surely God's turning his back on David. His son of adultery is dying in the night. But no, God comes. He says, David, this son is going to die because sometimes babies die. But I'm going to establish a throne for you forever. I'm telling you, one of your descendants will always be on the throne. I'm telling you, one day, someone from your line will sit on the throne forever. So David does have many sons. But just like David and some ways far worse, they all one by one fall away from God. Kings and chronicles, they oppress the poor wickedly. They worship other gods. They even commit human sacrifice. God says, if you guys don't knock this off, other nations are going to come in here and attack you and haul you into slavery, and you lack the moral backbone to win a war. You're going to get scattered. Well, they stay to the course, and they do get scattered. Assyria hauls away Israel, Babylon hauls away the southern kingdom. Surely God has turned his back now. The promised land is destroyed and everybody's hauled away. But no, God comes. God comes and says, the Persians are going to take this all over and the Persians are going to let you go home and rebuild the temple. And the prophet Isaiah says to them, someday the virgin, behold, will give birth to a child. And she will give birth to a son and his name will be Emmanuel, which means God comes. And one day in Nazareth, in a village of Galilee, there was a virgin named Mary when God came. Your Old Testament scriptures. 
Now, you could look at those parts of the story where Adam and Eve get kicked out of the garden and Ishmael gets sent away and a famine came on Israel and they were wandering the deserts of Sinai and David fell into corruption and Israel's enemies conquered her. And you could say, well, that's God turning his back on them, but is it? Because the story seems to say he keeps coming back. Were those things God turning his back on them or was that the consequences of sin? I want to ask you, when, you, when your children do wicked things and you let them suffer the consequences of their sin or you punish them, are you turning your back on them? That's what your children think. That's what they say when you're punishing them and when you're letting them suffer the consequences of their sin. But is that what you're doing? No. You're disciplining them. You're, you're saving them. When you disobey the rules of a living God, bad stuff happens. Who knew sin is actually dangerous and evil? That's why God called it sin. This illustration teaches us, it's not that God is hinky and hung up on a lot of weird stuff, and you better do what he says or he'll get mad. The stuff he's told us not to do actually destroys us, destroys society. That's why he told us not to do it. And just when we're about to destroy ourselves... God comes. Because God is like Jesus. And God has always been like Jesus. And there was never a time God wasn't like Jesus. We haven't always known that. But now we do. Now, one of, some of you, a, a couple of you asked specifically about the stories where God kills a bunch of people. Noah's flood. Conquering the promised land. Now, that's a powerful question. That question takes 30 minutes to answer. But it's an important question. There are 23,000 verses in the Bible. 200 of them are those kind of stories. So we're only talking about 1% of the Bible. But it's a powerful 1%. It's got to be addressed. Luckily, you have asked this question before, and I have answered it before. So I'm going to feature some messages on the website about those things. So if you go to the website and click podcast, just for a few weeks, there's going to be a floater underneath that says forgiveness. When you click that, one of the messages it'll take you straight to is the question, why does God slaughter thousands in the Old Testament? If you've got your Lakeland app, you, you do the same thing, and it'll take you right there. Click podcast and then forgiveness. Because that's an important question to answer for, for the couple of you that asked it. For this morning, several of you wrote questions like this. It sounds like we're throwing out all the Old Testament imagery of sacrificial atonement, the perfect lamb, the Passover, etc. Okay, I'm so glad you asked that so we get to address that one. Um, let's go straight to the heart of the matter. In Leviticus, they have a sin offering. So you show up to the temple and you bring your uh, perfect lamb. If you can't afford that, a goat. If you can't afford that, a pigeon. If you can't afford that, a pint of flour. God's like, bring something. Most of them brought a lamb. You put your hand on the lamb, then the priest slits the lamb's throat, bleeds it out, puts it on an altar of fire, and pronounces your forgiveness. What just happened? If you're looking at that ritual and you see that our sin causes death, I totally agree with you. That's in the, that's in the ritual. If you walk away from a ritual like that, feeling the need to repent and turn to God and to not walk in the path of I know better, I agree with you. That's exactly what it's for. If you see in that story, the Exodus story, where God saves them with the blood of the lamb and God is our rescuer, I agree with you. That picture is in there. 
But if you look at that ritual and see that it's actually God that wants to kill us and only the blood of that little lamb is protecting us, I think we've just gone one step too far. I think our atonement theory just suffers from 25% too much meaning. One good step, two good steps, three good steps, and one we did not need to take and it wasn't even explained that way in the scriptures. When John the Baptist said, as Jesus was baptized, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, he attaches Jesus now to that Lamb. So if you look at the life of Jesus and you see that human sin caused not just our death, but Jesus' death, I agree with you. That's in the picture. If you see Jesus' death on the cross and he's crying out for forgiveness and it moves you to repent and turn from sin and walk in the way of Jesus, I agree with you. That's what it's all about. If you see that he, like the Passover lamb, is, is, God is rescuing us through him, I agree with you. But if you see that it's really God that wants to kill us and only Jesus stands in our way, we're not seeing God the same way. It's just one extra step. 25% too much meaning. You know they had this problem in the Old Testament as well. In Old Testament times, they were already having problems understanding that those sacrifices were there to show you your sin, God's uh, forgiveness and rescue. Not about paying off God. That's why they have a bunch of scriptures like this. These are all Old Testament scriptures. 1 Samuel 15, 22. Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice and submission is better than offering the fat of rams. Hosea 6, 6. I want you to show love, not offer sacrifices. I want you to know me more than I want burnt offerings. Psalm 51, 16. David's apology. You do not desire sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want a burnt offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. Psalm 46. You take no delight in sacrifices or offerings. Now that you have made me listen, I finally understand you don't require burnt offerings or sin offerings. God is telling us again and again, stop saying I want to kill you. Stop adding an extra layer of meaning the scriptures did not give you. I want to save you from death. Give me your heart. Repent. Turn and stop walking down the path of I know better. In fact, follow my son. He's the only one that can lead you on the path that leads away from sin. In fact, no one comes to the Father except through Him. So for everyone who might have been worried, we are still believing in the Old Testament pictures of atonement and atonement on the cross. That the sacrificial lamb and Jesus, the Lamb of God, show that sin leads to death. They both remind us of the Passover and that God is our rescuer. But it's one unnecessary step to say that the Lamb's blood or Jesus' blood is paying off God God is not rescuing us from a death, or I should say Jesus is not rescuing us from a death caused by God. Jesus is rescuing us from a death caused by sin. Jesus is revealing God as the rescuer and the forgiver because God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There was never a time God wasn't like Jesus. 
We didn't always know that, but through the coming of Jesus, now we do. Several of you came up with a brilliant challenge to this image. You said, if God didn't turn away from Jesus, why does Jesus cry out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This seems like one of the central verses supporting Jesus' act of substitution for God's wrath against sin. That's an excellent question. It's a brilliant observation. To all of you who asked that, good. You're getting us into the Bible. So now we're going to do some Bible study. Jesus did not say words that he thought up on the spot. Jesus was quoting Psalm 22. The first line of the psalm, therefore the title of the psalm. I don't believe Jesus quotes the Bible out of context. I believe Jesus knows how to handle the scriptures. So if we read Psalm 22, we will find the meaning of Jesus' words. If Jesus quotes Psalm 22 because he's becoming human sin and God is letting him die as a human sacrifice, letting all his wrath go into him, it will say that in Psalm 22. If Jesus is saying that human sin is killing him, yet he knows that God comes so God will rescue him and save the world, it's going to say that in Psalm 22. So let's read Psalm 22. If you have your Bible, you can open it up. If you have the phone app, you can press it in there. Let's take a look. Psalm 22, verses 1 through 3, says, My God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Why are you so far away when I groan for help? Every day I call to you, my God, but you do not answer. Every night I lift my voice, but I find no relief. Yet you are holy and enthroned on the praises of Israel. Here is someone who just the night before prayed, God, if there is any other way than this, take this cup away. Not my will, but yours be done. And now that he's in it, says, God, where are you? The next stanza says, when people in the past suffered like this, God came to rescue them. The third stanza says, everyone is mocking me. They say that you won't come rescue me, God. Stanza four says, God, you've brought me this far. Don't abandon me now. Stanzas five, six, seven, and eight say these people who are killing me, they are powerful. I can't beat them myself. I'm dying right here and now. My legs are broken. My throat is dry. My hands are pierced. They're gambling for my clothes. Stanza 9 says, save me from this God and hurry. Stanza 10 says, after you have saved me, I'll tell the whole world you did it. Stanza 11 says, the world will know you are good when you save me. Stanza 12 says, the world will change after this. Everyone who follows you will be taken care of. Stanza 13 says, if you save me, the whole world will be drawn to you. And the last stanza says, this good news will last for generations. So let me ask you, let me ask you. Did Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So that we would ignore the scripture he was quoting and instead say, God turned Jesus into sin to let all his wrath against us go into him. 
Or did Jesus say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So we'd remember the scripture he is quoting and know that even though human sin is destroying him, on Easter morning, God is going to rescue him. And this rescue will show the forgiveness of God and the whole world will be drawn to God through it. I don't believe Jesus quotes the Bible out of context. This psalm shouted from the cross shows us who God is. And that on Easter morning, God comes. Because God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. And there was never a time God wasn't like Jesus. We didn't always know this, but now we do. Since we were talking so much about forgiveness, a handful of you asked questions like this. Jesus did talk about an unforgivable sin. What is it? Why would the forgiving God say something like that? What is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? You guys are sharp. You guys are sharp. You are on it. All right, back to Bible study. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all describe a a conversation in which Jesus discusses blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and unforgivable and eternal sin. Matthew's version is the longest and most detailed, so we'll follow it. It starts out, Jesus is casting out demons. And the people watching him see those people being set free, and they say, could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? The Pharisees, the priests of that day, they looked at it and quickly told the crowd, no, 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 he's not the Messiah. This is the work of Beelzebub, they said. This is the work of the devil. This is the work of Satan. Jesus says, wait a minute. Why would Satan summon me, an agent of Satan, to cast out other agents of Satan? He says, a house divided against itself like that can't stand. And then Jesus says, you know what? God is going to forgive all kinds of sins. Jesus said, he'll even forgive if you speak against the Son of Man. He says, but if you speak against the work of the Holy Spirit, which is happening right in front of you, You've committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You're guilty of an eternal sin. If you're looking at good, you're looking at people being healed and set free, and you say, well, that's actually the work of the devil. You're way off the rails. How can you repent when you can't even tell good from evil anymore? Or in the case of the Pharisees, when you see God setting people free, but you think, well... It's not us doing it. It's someone else. So we're going to lose our power. So let's call this good thing evil. You're toast. We said that last week. We said there was a river of a a fiery, passionate love that is sweeping us all toward the heart of God. And when you respond to God's love with love, it sweeps you right right into the heart of God. And that fiery river becomes light and warmth for your journey. But you try to respond to it with rebellion or in in the case of the Pharisees, calling it evil. You are swimming upstream against fire. That fire is going to rip you to pieces. That is going to be the burning torments of hell to you. But at any time, you can respond to God's love. You can repent and you can respond to God's love with love. And it will sweep you right 
toward God. My dad told me something as a a child about the unforgivable sin, which I think has kept my brother and I from struggling with this the way some do. So I'm going to share it with you. My dad said, the unforgivable sin is when the Holy Spirit throws you a rope down a well you're trapped in. It's going to set you free. And you take out your pocket knife and you reach up and you cut it off higher than you can reach. Because you know better. He also said, anyone worrying about committing the unforgivable sin can't commit it. Think about that one. Some of you tried to find the limits of forgiveness. One of you asked, how does God forgive someone who's had an abortion? It is murder. And is that a forgivable sin? To the woman who, for whatever reason, has terminated the life of her own child, God comes. God comes and says, you don't know what you're doing. You don't know what you did. I can give you the security you were trying to get for yourself. I can show you a new view of life. I can give you the hope you didn't have. I will love you. God comes. You know how I know that? Because there used to be this other guy named Saul. And Saul thought he was doing the right thing when he would find people who followed Jesus, men and women, and he'd drag them out in the street and he'd clap chains on them and he'd haul them off. And it was time to vote for them to be executed. He always voted execute. And God came. And he said, Saul, why do you persecute me? I am Jesus whom you persecute. Saul changed his mind, and God changed his name to Paul, and Paul started writing letters about the forgiveness of God, and they make up about a third of what we call the New Testament. To a government-sanctioned serial mass murderer, God comes. Does God always come, one of you asks? Does he ever stop coming if he's shunned every time? We rebel, and God comes. And we turn away, and God comes. And we say, I know better, and God comes. And I just showed you the Old Testament story where this went on and on for 2,000 years. This never stops happening. God comes. Now, at some point, you may die and run out of life, but he never stopped coming. One of you asked, how many times does God forgive? You know, Peter asked this question once. Peter actually asked, how many times should I forgive? And Jesus says, Peter, be ready to forgive seven times, 77 times, which was the first century Jewish way of saying infinity. If God is calling his followers to forgive infinitely, I suspect God himself is capable of forgiving infinitely. Several of you asked, how do I know when I've been forgiven? Well, he hasn't killed you yet. (laughs) But seriously. Some of you need to know this answer in your head. 
You, will, you need to study the scriptures and read this story until you finally understand this is who God is from the actions he has done. He is the God who forgives. Others of you are going to need this answer in your gut. You're just going to need to feel it that this is right. It just feels right that he would forgive. Uh, so I just want to ask you, is God going to make the world a better place by hating you and tormenting you for what you've done forever? Or is God going to make the world a better place by forgiving you and giving you another chance to participate in that with him? What's going to make the world a better place? For what God wants, what's he going to get? Well, if you're able to figure out that forgiveness and giving you another chance would be a better way, don't you think God's sharp enough to figure that out too? Others of you are going to need to feel that love in your heart. You're going to need to go for a walk, a long walk, a couple of hours walk, and ask, God, what do you think of me? And then you're going to fill in the answer. I'll tell you what you are. You're going to have to push that aside and say, God, what do you think of me? And then the voice of your father, your stepmother is going to come in and say, I'll tell you who you are. You're going to have to push that aside and say, God, what do you think of me? A long walk in silence, pushing in the fill-in answers until finally the still small voice sneaks in and says, this is what I think of you. At the end of this service, Pastor Dan's going to come up and offer you an opportunity to go on days like this and pray prayers like this. Some of you heart folks need that day. I think for several people who wrote this question, your maybe real problem is what some other people wrote, which is, uh, how do you forgive yourself? A lot of you ask that. How do you forgive yourself? A person who doesn't forgive themselves feels like justice demands they must suffer continually for what they did. A person who doesn't forgive themselves feels like they're cheating at the game of life if they ever let themselves forget for one minute what they did and how bad it was. And the thing is, you go through work week and kids and you get all distracted. You get to the end of the week, you realize you did forget what you did and how bad it was. And then you torment yourself. How could you do that and forget what you did to that person and those people? Oh, what kind of person are you? You're killing yourself with this, you know. And you're wounding anyone who tries to love you and befriend you. You're still hurting people. First with what you did. Now with what you won't let yourself be human. Your ticket out is Mercy Street. Mercy Street is a ministry. It meets here on Saturday nights upstairs in the youth room, 530. You want to torture yourself, huh? Well, then show up this Saturday at 5.30 in the youth room and give yourself the humiliation you really deserve. Confess your sin to other real people. Except that will be the beginning of your journey toward healing and forgiving yourself. I want to assure you, it's not about forgetting what you did and acting like it didn't happen. That's not what forgiveness is. That's not where you're headed. It's not about you going scot-free. That's not what forgiveness is. It's about you being free of your own self-hate. So other people who want to love you, crazy as they are, there are people who want to love you and be close to you, they can do it in peace. God calls us to forgive others, and God forgave you 
shouldn't you take the journey of forgiving yourself? I mean, given what you did, it's going to be a long journey. But you've got to take it. Mercy Street, this Saturday, youth room, 5.30. You just show up with the truth. It all happens after that. The most asked question of last week, how do I forgive others and why is it so hard? First thing I want to affirm you, everyone who wrote that question, you are close to the kingdom of God. You are close to the kingdom of God. Because when you saw a picture of God coming to us and his forgiveness, your instinctual response was, I should reflect that in my life. You get it. You get it. And to answer your question of why is it so hard? Because it's really hard. Did you see what Jesus just went through to secure forgiveness? It's really hard. There's nothing wrong with you because it's hard. It's hard. Can we do it? Oh, I know you've tried. You even thought you forgave him, and then it all came creeping back in. The answer, again, to how we forgive others is long, like a 30-minute answer. So in that same part of the website, I want to feature a couple of messages for some of you this week. So you go to the website, you click podcast, a drop-down box will appear. One of them says forgiveness. You click in there and it says uh, two more messages. One, how do we truly forgive? It describes this journey. For those of you who are further along, then there's a message after that that says, here's how to say I forgive you. So for most of us, it's going to be a years before we're to that one. But if you're further along, you want to know, I did forgive him, but how do I, what do we, uh, how, here's how to say I forgive you is a, a next step. I want to assure you of a few things before you start down that journey. Forgiving someone does not mean you're required to forget what they did to you. How could you? Forgiving doesn't mean you're going to excuse what they did to you. Oh, it's okay. It's not okay. It will never be okay. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness doesn't mean you have to go be around them and be chummy, especially if they're not safe. Some of these people don't change. Forgiveness is not something you do quickly. You tried that once. That didn't work. And it's not something you're going to do once and for all. It's something that comes back repeatedly in your life and you have to do it again, but you get more skilled as you go. You do. What is forgiveness is going to be how you can be healed from the hurts you didn't deserve. Your healing and your freedom. I'm still not sure we're all rock solid on this. But I think we've done a lot of good foundation work here. I hope enough that we can move forward, build a church community on this this year, share a good story of God coming to us and Christ's forgiveness with our friends and your family and your neighbors and your coworkers from this strong foundation. As far as the parts where we're still questioning, we're, that's why we're all here together. We can keep questioning. We can keep studying the scriptures. We can keep praying together. I think we'll come to it. Just in the days and weeks to come, as you keep coming back to wrestle this, just remind yourself of the things you know are true, that God is unchanging, that God is like Jesus, 
And God has always been like Jesus. There was never a time God wasn't like Jesus. We didn't always know that. But Jesus came to show us, and now we do. We turn our attention to communion now. And the servers will come forward. It's another symbol, not with chairs, but with bread and a cup. Jesus took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you because forgiveness is hard. So we tear off a piece of that bread and we dip it in the cup because he said, this cup is my blood poured out for the new covenant, for the forgiveness of your sins. God comes. We dip that bread in the cup and we take it into ourselves and we receive this gift from Christ. Jesus says, when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you remember my death until I eat and drink it with you in my Father's kingdom. So if you'd like to participate in that symbol, let's stand together and let's begin with the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. At a very obvious part for the morning, I'll call us to a little pause and a moment of reflection and then we'll finish it. So we'll start it and then we'll have this pause and then we'll finish it. Let us pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Let's pause there. And pray about your next step. Is it to listen to a message on forgiveness? Is it to show up at Mercy Street and to confess and begin a journey of forgiving yourself? Is it to have a conversation with someone over something that just happened this week? It's not a big deal yet. We've got to, this is the kingdom of God to reflect God's forgiveness in our life. How can we do that this week? And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil, for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Therefore, let us proclaim the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast, the gifts of God for the people of God. Each day, may Jesus Christ be as real to us as this food and this drink. Come forward when you're ready.